Okay, I think that's recording now that you're receiving. Um, yep, can you I, hear me okay? I can, thank you. Okay, so we're back again. Um, this is Rianta. My name is Mohammed Loga, uh, second year medical student here at the University of Leicester. Um, and this is a show where we answer your questions related to applying for or studying medicine, and I guess anything else in the medicine related field. Uh, once again, we've got um, returning guest, uh, Dr. Ron Chu. Um, Dr. Just give a bit of an introduction or anything. Yeah, I'm I'm retired uh, associate professor in epidemiology of public health from Leicester Medical School. Um, I was formerly a consultant in public health uh, before then, um, and um, I want to say that uh, as you're intending to cover the COVID-19 um, issues, um, that uh, I have no um, uh, insider knowledge as to what is happening. Um, the views I express are personal um, and based on my uh, personal judgment. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's a good, good thing to note. Um, also, thanks everyone for getting their questions in. Um, we also had a previous episode with Dr. Shu. Um, like, like Dr. Shu mentioned, um, this is going to be the more COVID-19 related um, episode. We had a previous one which came out um, on, what date was it? Uh, the 23rd, I think, 22nd or 23rd of June, um, episode number 35, where we talked more about um, Dr. Chu's career as a public health consultant, like you mentioned, and a, a GP and how, and his thoughts about the specialty and any tips for any students. Um, as usual, thanks everyone for your questions. Um, you can send any questions in via the email, uh, which is mo, just mo.reanswer at gmail.com. Instagram is mzl underscore 18. And also if you go to the um, all the links are on there to everything else as well. Um, got a series of blog posts coming out as well. Um, so, like I said, this is the this is the episode about COVID nineteen. So, just first of all, I guess, Doctor Shu, um, when, when I guess, when did the COVID nineteen coronavirus kind of come up on your radar? Um, it it actually came up on my radar in um, January. Um, I was at a, a conference when um, um, some people, colleagues uh, who were uh, part of Public Health England um, were uh, suddenly looking at their phones more actively than usual. Um, and uh, so it was generally when it came on my radar um, to do that. And then I watched um, what happened uh, through the weeks through to mid-March. Um, and I watched it follow a similar pattern to what happened in 2003 um, with the SARS virus. Um, the COVID-19 is caused by a virus uh, uh, called SARS-CoV-2. COVID is coronavirus and 2 is second. So um, I, I was uh, conscious that the behaviour of, of this virus uh, would may well be similar in, in some respects to the original uh, first time that SARS came out into this world. Yeah. Um, and kind of leads on to a question that we had from one of our um, listeners. Um, he mentions COVID-19 is part of something we've seen before and part once in a lifetime. So you kind of mentioned kind of the, the SARS one. Um, to what degree is this pandemic a unique problem versus a generic problem? Um, it is predominantly a generic problem. Um, 
the human race has always had um, pandemics. Um, most noticeably, uh, notably, um, the, the Black Death. And that had huge consequences um, on um, the, the human race. And in fact, uh, spurred huge amount of economic change uh, through the devastation it, it caused. Um, and we've always had pandemics in terms of influenza pandemics. And in fact, uh, the World Health Organization, one of my uh, colleagues, um, had spent time with the World Health Organization uh, and her task was to actually look at the preparedness of the uh, different nations in the world. Um, and she, she said that in fact, compared to um, the rest of the world, Britain is up there at the top and one of the most prepared ones for a pandemic. The assumption at that time was it would be a pandemic of influenza because we're well overdue one um, in, in that way. So predominantly, it's a generic issue. It's, it's one that we uh, were supposedly prepared for. Um, it's one that we have experience of, a pandemic. What's unique about this one is, is almost the information age. Um, in the olden days, to communicate with Australia, you'd, you'd have to get a phone with a landline and get an operator to connect you. And before then, you had to post a letter and waited uh, um, a month for a response to come back. Uh, nowadays it's instantaneous uh, and the information age has altered the way people look at uh, pandemics suddenly an event on the other side of the world on another continent is very real and happening here at the same time and um, people act and react um, accordingly um, but we have always had pandemics and in fact we had a, a plan on how to, to uh, react to it Okay, so you kind of mentioned um, that that plan that you, that you talked about, um, but obviously, as you can see, I think one of the numbers that kind of came out towards the start of the pandemic was that twenty thousand number that they mentioned being twenty thousand number of deaths being a good number of deaths, um, and now obviously we've we've gone over forty thousand. So, so what are your thoughts on? Um, like you mentioned as well, we were supposed to be one of the most prepared um, nations. So what, what are your thoughts on, on our response to it, our government's response and I guess public health's response? Yeah, so, so that, that number was, was in response to, to a, a reporter's question. Um, and I think we'd, we'd need to um, step back a bit to, to think about uh, what, what, what it is that we're, we're dealing with. So we're, we're fundamentally dealing with a virus for which we have no way of either preventing people acquiring it and uh, uh, vaccination or uh, treating it once it's been acquired. Uh, we can't actively treat the virus, we can treat the effects of the virus um, and hope that the virus will stop messing us about, but uh, that the body about, uh, but we have no way of, of, of uh, an antiviral agent or any other agent to, to um, stop it. So we're, we're faced with, with that. What the, the government and, and um, I think we need to get ourselves back into early March when the government was and the public was watching what was happening in other nations. And, and the way I'd, I'd ask people to think about it is there are three ways all of us will die. We will die when we're due to die. We will die prematurely because we have an illness, a, a disease, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, an infection. 
Yeah. Or we would die prematurely because we couldn't get the right care. And it's that last one that the government was trying to prevent. So that if you look back at the rhetoric at the time, the rhetoric was we can't afford to overwhelm the NHS. We haven't got enough intensive care units. We had to build new hospitals, the Nightingale hospitals, with oxygen pipes so that we can keep people oxygenated. And the fear was that we will have the, the uh, vision that was seen in Northern Italy and uh, in New York. Um, and these are highly sophisticated healthcare services, overwhelmed. And the result would be that people would die not because it was natural death, not because um, it was a premature death, they would die because the care was not available. And so that would be a political scandal if you think about it. So they talked about flattening the curve. Eventually, if we don't have a vaccine or a treatment, an antiviral, if the virus continues as it is and as we are behaving, what's going to happen is everyone's going to get it up to a herd immunity level. So you could call that 80 or 90%. And therefore, everyone will eventually, that number, if, if you've got the number to die, your number will come up. Now, whether it comes up now, or it comes up in 2021 or 2022, but if we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a treatment, it will come up. Because we have no other way of preventing a virus other than everyone lives like a hermit. And, and therefore prevent its transmission. So um, the number of deaths is an artificial way of looking at it. It's basically saying the number of deaths that's already happened, but in effect, the deaths are going to happen. It is whether we have our deaths up front or we have them delayed. And I think from the government's perspective, their greatest fear is to have deaths because of uh, lack of ability to get care. And that's why the care home deaths are currently now being regarded as unacceptable because the relatives are saying these are deaths due to lack of care, not because they got the coronavirus or the, the SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, okay. Um, so you kind of mentioned within the um, herd immunity, <clears throat> sorry, and also just for any of the listeners out there, um, I kind of we got a few questions, and if anyone wants to know more about Dr. Hsu's thoughts, there's a nice thing a podcast called The Breakdown, um, and I think the episode is will we ever get back to normal, where he kind of mentioned um, and talked about this herd immunity. So, so why do you think we started off talking about herd immunity early on, and then stopped that fairly fairly quickly? Um, I think uh, it was the only exit strategy we had at the time. Um, and that the whole focus was not overwhelm the health service, i.e. treat those who are treatable so we don't get deaths due to lack of care, um, but um, accept that we're going to get deaths. And that um, the exit strategy would be we have to get enough people infected so that there's a herd immune response and therefore the virus is contained within that herd immune. Response and that's the, the herd immunity is the basis on which vaccination works mm. essentially. Um, the realization within a few weeks, I think it was within two or three weeks, was that to gain that amount of herd immunity, we would have to accept a, a, a significant number of deaths. Mm. Um, and um, 
That, I think, is a political judgment. I don't think that's a scientific judgment. The science is that if we don't get the vaccine, we are going to get those deaths. So I think it's a political judgment that that number of deaths would not be deemed acceptable. I think also, to be fair to the government and public health England, the Chinese were not up front, or the Chinese government, let's be more accurate, the Chinese government were not up front about what the mortality rate was. Um, and uh, we honestly had no idea um, how many cases were in, say, let's say Wuhan, and how many deaths that were in Wuhan attributed to COVID-19. And I would decide if you want, um, you know, if anyone from the Chinese government wants to challenge me on that, I'd say, well, go to the WHO dashboard for COVID-19, and you will see two sp spikes um, in there. Uh, one when suddenly the number of cases were doubled, and then another one when the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19 was doubled. Uh, and that was in, uh, in the early days, and that was down to China's reporting. So the world and, and the UK government included in that did not really have the figures to hand to work out what was an acceptable number of deaths. Um, and I think they switched away from it when um, the modelling showed that the government would have to accept so many deaths in so many weeks or per week. Um, and clearly, um, a decision was made that we weren't willing to do that. Okay. Um, and there's kind of another question with, regarding herd immunity. You mentioned it was a strategy at the start. Is it, is it still a viable strategy now? Can, can, is that... That, that one, uh, um, you may not realise it, but that one is a highly political question. The, the strategy of herd immunity would mean that we just take the hit as a society, accept the deaths, but we come out with an economy that we can get started earlier. And some countries around the world, I've already been told, are actually going for that strategy. They're looking at their economy and looking at how to get out of it fast so that they can get started and get started early. And they're already seeing China doing that now. Um, by hook or by crook, China is restarting its economy while the Western European nations um, and the Western nations, North American nations and, and the South American nations are struggling uh, to do that. India is in a morass because Essentially, no one believes the figures coming out of India. India is in significant difficulties. It's trying to get an economy going while having a, a runaway um, uh, uh, epidemic with, within it. So it's a political decision. And, and, and the politics actually relates to which part of society do the politicians need to protect at the expense of the other. And the moment the UK government's doing so the, predominantly two populations. There's a group over 60 and there's a group under 40. The over 60 are fearful and they're fearful because they see premature death looming in front of them. The under 40s say, well, the chances of me dying are actually much reduced to very low. My greatest risk is income, jobs, career. And to me, if I was under 40, you'd be looking at, do I have an economy that's going to give me career prospects, income, a job that's going to take me forward? And essentially to quote one protester in the United States, 
I may die from coronavirus, but I will die from starvation. And at the moment, the government's trying to balance the two. And in fact, I think most Western nations, uh, Western European, I wouldn't count North America, wouldn't count the United States as being consistent. Um, but um, certainly in Europe, they're trying to balance between those two populations. And you've seen the reaction of one half of the population to being locked down and then having a release. And you've almost got this silent older major older people who are, are literally hiding away. I know people over the age of 60 who are planning on being in home permanently, not going out for two years or more. So okay. fearful are they of it. Where you've got young people who would want to go out to, onto a beach, onto a march, onto celebration in a street party, uh, whichever city you want to use as an example and clearly they see it very very different so i guess like i mentioned with the episode that you're talking about the interesting things were about the the social aspect like you just mentioned um and you kind of talked about the balancing the economy versus the health of the people and so would you say the, the lockdown restrictions that we're seeing i guess from fourth of july onwards is that, is that a good idea um, or what, what are your thoughts it, on that? It, it's, um, and, and as you know, the statistics involves the estimation of the level of uncertainty around a number. So the, the net reproduction rate is, is how many more people are infected um, from this one person. And if it's more than one, it means it will spread faster. So one person infecting two others means when that one person uh, has dealt with a virus, they've got two others doing it, and you can see the doubling taking place. If it's less than one, so if one person infects only half, or i.e. two people need to be infected for one other to get it, then that halving will take over and it will take it down. Now, at the moment, overall in Britain, it's roughly about 0.8, 0.9. The statistical uncertainty brings it up close to one uh, in doing so. So it's it, it's um, a calculated risk. It's a calculated risk. Um, the level of uncertainty is that it will not take much for it to tip above one and we start accelerating upwards. Um, if you get a 10% rise um, per week in roughly, I'm trying to do compound interest on this one, but uh, if it's a 1.1 and, and it's 1.1 each week, uh, within 10 weeks, you'd have the whole population. Um, uh, you'd have it doubled um, up uh, and then you'd be doubling again. So you, you, you'd be moving very quickly upwards uh, once it gets started again. So um, the, the relaxation is, as the UK government has said, it's provisional and it's provisional that they don't see that our number going up um, above uh, one. Um, the problem is that they have to wait two to four weeks to see what the impact of the 4th of July relaxation is. Um, so we won't know until the end of July for sure. We might know by um, the 18th of July, two weeks on, but certainly by the end of July, we'll know for sure what the impact and whether that risk was worth taking. Yeah, um, and... Also, within, within that lockdown kind of easing the um, press conference that we had, we also talked about the reduction from the two-meter rule to the 
that's what they call it, one metre plus. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I guess the government have been quite on the two metre for quite a while, they stuck out on it, but other other governments have changed quite early on, I guess. Yeah, so so the, the science on that is, is quite clear. Two, two metres is, is pretty well, you, you're highly unlikely, you know, um, to get uh, a qu- acquisition to acquire a virus uh, if you're two meters away from sir. So um, there's, there's, a, there's a need to sort of try to understand something around infection control. So this virus resides in the upper respiratory tract. The only way out is through the nostrils and through the mouth. So if you keep your nostrils and mouth shut, I don't breathe, I know you'll die for, for the reason that you're that said, but if you don't breathe, you cannot transmit it. So if you speak, you will pull droplets out. And the droplets are what the virus needs. And the virus actually needs water to reside in while it's waiting to, uh, to get inside another body. Then it can replicate. So the droplets, and in just standard um, ex- uh, sort of, uh, experiments that have taken place will will drop down because they're heavy um, within two meters. What suspected is happening as well as droplets is what's known as aerosol. So aerosol is a little bit like spittle basically and it's very small droplets and they hang around in the cloud. That's why the two meter is not a guarantee because you could still get infected from the the aerosol effect. One meter, basically, you're going to acquire it from droplets and aerosol. You, you basically added another method of, of, of doing it. Um, if people don't talk to each other, and there are some masks that are now being created where the mask will act as a Bluetooth, connected by Bluetooth to your smartphone, and the smartphone will, will type the message up as to what you're saying, um, as well as the, the mask acting as a loudspeaker. But if you essentially have masks uh, uh, that prevent any droplets coming out, and I'm not talking about the surgical mask, I'm talking about what's known as the N95 respir- respiratory mask, uh, which form a seal around your face so that you can only breathe through their filter. Um, if you have one of those, um, then you, you basically... Uh, say well okay I can do less than two meters with a pretty well guarantee that I'm not going to acquire it. The one meter plus is the gamble. It's part of the gamble that they're taking Um, and in a sense Boris Johnson was right when he said look we're doing this one meter plus you just got to be sensible. Mm. If you're not sensible and we've seen instances of that on TV then we are going to run into trouble and we're going to have to start shutting down again yeah uh, and kind of off that uh, insensibility and i guess you might call it irresponsibility um is as you saw um for the past couple of days when it was really nice weather everyone had the same idea of going to bournemouth and the beaches around there um and it's kind of interesting one one of the comments that kind of stuck out to me was this gentleman who said um so he's and this it's not exact quote but he basically said um, I don't personally know anyone that's got it. So none, like like me, none of my family, no one that I know has got it. None of my friends, I guess, have, have been tested or have had it. So what, what what have I kind of got anything to fear about? I can, I'm can i fine with going to the beach, a crowded beach. Yeah. How would you go about responding to a 
your person that has that kind of thought process? Um, with with some difficulty, um, and and the reason rather than give the how I would respond, which would actually be much more um, diplomatic, um, but the reason that I would find that difficulty is the perspective of the individual. Um, so what the individual um, is basically describing, um, so I'll paraphrase what you said, which is, I don't know anyone that's got it, so therefore I'm not going to get it. And, and essentially what that individual is um, uh, describing, what um, you and, and other students should be aware of, because uh, you've got an exam coming, is that that is prevalence. What they're describing is prevalence. What proportion of the population have got it? That is very low. Therefore, I'm not, I'm not concerned because the chance of me meeting someone with it is so small that uh, that's got nothing to do with me. And so that, that is all about being um, themselves. What is the risk to me personally? The difficulty of trying to explain this to um, people is that um, the risk isn't so much the prevalence. The risk is the exponential function which is described by the R number, the, base, the, the net reproduction rate. Once it starts accelerating, there's, it's very difficult to try to bring that acceleration down. You, 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 you basically have to do a U-turn. And, and the measures that you need to take to, to, to make that uh, U-turn take, take, um, uh, occur means that you uh, are having a slow effect of trying to do that U-turn while it's accelerating upwards. So the person is actually displaying a personal perspective, but not a population perspective. And as you know, um, I tried in both the lectures and the group work to try to introduce that as very different concepts in doing it. If I was faced with that person, I'd say, um, yes, you may well be okay. And I'm not going to deny that. Um, but are you going to tell me that you're not going to see your parents because they're going to be above 40 or roughly that age and certainly not see your grandparents and not do so and guarantee to them that you will never go anywhere near them or go anywhere near someone who might go near them because you may give it to someone else or, and then they might give it to your parents and grandparents. In other words, will you um, as a family decide that the generations should separate and keep apart. In other words, a form of segregation, where old go in their place and young go in there, you know. And segregation and race, and, and certainly United States, have huge connotations. And although that's related to uh, race, segregation by age, I'd put, is also equally um, equally. Um, difficult um, and equally dangerous to start off to start on um, okay so we kind of alluded to you mentioned that exponential rise that could possibly happen if we kind of do the lockdown easing and we've heard a lot about the second wave as Germany's had I don't know if you can class it as a second wave Korea and that kind of a thing a bit of China I guess um, so, so what is our actual risk and why, why should we be fearful of this second wave? Um, the, the actual risk I now, having seen, and as you know, this is a, an almost daily thing 
that um, were, were watching evolve in front of us, uh, on, predominantly on our TV screens or computer screens. Each, as each day goes past, my personal assessment is the risk of that second wave in the United Kingdom is increasing. And it's increasing because of the behavior of the people. Um, just, just to point out, the, the, the R number is quoted by virus or agents, uh, microbes, but in fact, it's related to the behavior of the people. Um, and, and it's the people and their behavior that controls this R number going up. So it, it increases uh, um, day by day. So uh, I, I'm now moving from moderate to high risk. The reason the second wave is regarded as um, problematic is based on the pandemic experiences. It was the second wave in the Spanish flu. This is the post First World War flu that decimated millions of people. Um, it was the second wave that did the worst damage. Uh, the Hong Kong flu, I think it was in 1956 or early 60s, uh, the second wave was the worst wave out of the three waves, the pandemic influenzas that come in three waves. Um, so um, there's experience of second wave. The reason the second wave is so fearful in this instance, um, because you could say, well, no, people, it, it, you've had it before, but it may not happen now, is are people willing to go back into isolation the second time round? Are children with exams due next year willing to not go to school? Are we willing to tell children we've now had to lock down out, you out of education for most of an academic year and therefore we need you to stay on at school for one more year? And the same goes for university students as much as to medical students and everyone else. And, and because people realise that if they were locked down in that second wave, a level of disruption to their income, to their careers, their jobs, et cetera, et cetera, is so disruptive, we may not be able to get the population to do something about it until it's too late. And that person who said, well, I don't know anyone who's got it, therefore I'm not going to be, I'm going to be okay, will keep always that view until someone in their family's got it. By that time, we'll have had it so much in in terms of prevalence in the community but also accelerating with the r number going well above one that um it would be too late to prevent the overwhelming of the health service etc etc yeah so i think you, you kind of mentioned and we've talked about this long-term disruption i guess schools jobs children university etc um and that's also within the context of the fact that we haven't got a vaccine and we've not seen it before that's one of the major reasons why this this could be for the long haul. Um, and one of the things that we've kind of saw as one of the strategies to combat that is this test, track and trace kind of a situation. Um, how important is it actually? And can it can it function as, as it is designed? Um, it can, but it's hugely demanding in resources. Mm. Um, the 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 normal principle about this one is for isolated, almost point epidemics. So point epidemics is there's a single source. It started from that single source and it comes out. So food poisoning, for example, um, is one. Uh, measles outbreak, meningitis. You'll, as medical students, you'll see meningitis cases 
in school children, one of the first people they notify is the public health person. The public health person, first thing go, goes to the family, the next thing goes up to the school and then finds out who are the close contacts and therefore would uh, give them prophylactic antibiotics to try to prevent them from transmitting um, the uh, bacterium um, onto um, another uh, person. And, and that is essentially what is being proposed. What's never been done before is it on such a huge scale, on, on a community scale. And it is, it is a sort of epidemiological philosophical debate is when is it an epidemic? When is it an outbreak? And when is it endemic? In other words, it's so common that we, we just have to accept it's going to be growing within the community. Um, and uh, practically, the difference might well be, can we get enough people to find enough contact? Mm -hmm. Then we call it outbreak. Uh, it's endemic when we just haven't got enough people to do that. Um, to do that. Um, so it can work. Um, it's reliant on rapid result turnaround of the test or convincing people to, 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 to have the test, uh, identifying those who are in close contact and uh, basically uh, getting those people to comply with the re request that they um, isolate and do not infect in fact, it wouldn't be them. They would have to do the whole household, would have to isolate. So though it might be um, the uh, uh, father in the family that, that uh, got uh, tracked down as a contact, the mother would have to do it, uh, the children would have to do it, and all their jobs would be affected in that way, etc. Um, and kind of with this test track and trace system, you kind of mentioned the fact that is essentially, uh, say the father's got it, we know he lives with the, the the daughter and the mother and that kind of a thing. But there's also those sort of unknown contacts. So he's gone to work, he's gone to the shops, um, and he's coming in contact with all these other extra people. And the way to combat that is through the app um, that we've heard a lot of talk about. And there's a lot of kind of, I don't know if you can call it, but controversy over that. Um, how important and how crucial do you, do you see that app? And do you see it coming out anytime soon? Um, I'd, I'd concur with the um, the person who, who who was in charge of it. I'd, I'd say the app is the cherry um, on the cake. Um, for for those who, who who would use that app, um, they uh, it, it works. The difficulty with the app is you you get a basically essentially a text message saying um, you've been in contact with so and so. The issue that you then face is if you are working, do you phone your employer and say, I'm not coming in for the next two weeks? And the employer says, well, I'll deduct two weeks wages off you or you can have it as, as, as annual leave. Do you as a student say, I'm not going to sit my exam and I'm going to stay at home? And the university says, well, then you'll have to go for resit. If you fail your resit, you're off the course. So. The app as as a um, text message, and you say, I'm going to do this based on a text message. It's going to be very, very difficult for you to do so. If I, as someone, phoned you and said, I'm from Public Health England, you've had contact with about 30 minutes, you were in the same room as so-and-so who's got COVID-19. We're telling everyone in that room uh, that they're at high risk. Um, I know your ethnicity. Uh, I know your background. 
I'm advising you, you know. And you you'd naturally would say, well, look, I've got this high stakes event that's coming up in front of me. Should I or should I not? And I'd say, well, you really ought not to. And I'd be able to talk talk you. Or maybe I'd say, actually, you were about probably at the back end of the room and the person was at the, you know, 20 feet away. It's highly unlikely. You'll get a conversation and that doesn't do it. And, and that, I think, is one of the issues of the app and, and countries around the world have found it. For some populations, some societies, they will do what the text does. But for others, they'll start exercising judgment, as it were. In effect, doing the Dominic Cummings judgment. And that is that is what a lot of people are going to do. The Dominic Cummings incident and and the failure to, for him to pay a consequence for that, um, I think will have repercussions because everyone else will cite Dominic Cummings as, well, Dominic Cummings did this and he exercised judgment. So I'm going to exercise judgment. And it's one of the steps towards me thinking, all right, we've just gone from moderate to high risk of a second wave. Yeah, that's, that is very interesting because I do I do hear a lot of those uh, Dominic Cummings conversations uh, out and about. Um, so kind of if you're looking towards the future, I guess, um, I guess you can talk, talk us through it short term versus long term. Uh, and if there's another pandemic, I guess, what, what, what do you think the UK has learnt as, I guess, medical community I guess socially, uh, if we've learned anything. Um, that's that's it's actually quite difficult to say. I'll, I'll probably I'll do it in the way you've asked initially, which was short, medium, long term. Mm. Um, sh- short term, I think. Um, I think the the sense of being embattled and the sense of having a common enemy has created a, a civility within society in doing that. And um, whether it's protests or celebrations in the street, you've seen counter effects to protests. So within protests, you've, you've seen people um, helping other people uh, so that they not injured with, with the celebrations um, and talk about Liverpool Football Club, we've seen the ab reaction to that celebrations and we've seen people tidying up, etc. So there's, there's a, a sense of um, society coming back. And in a sense, Boris Johnson is quite nifty in, in saying very early on, there is such a thing as society because Margaret Thatcher slightly misquoted, actually. But Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society. And, and, and Boris Johnson is right to say, look, let's make this a society. Let's, let's make this our blitz in, in the 21st century. So that's the short term. The other short term effect is the focus on the NHS. Um, the NHS has demonstrated in the past few weeks its political power. Um, there has been over the past decade as the performance in NHS um, linked partly to funding, but other issues as well. Um, when we had scandals in the NHS, many of us were worried that the NHS had lost its political power and was therefore at risk as an organisation, as a setup of a healthcare service. Um, but the NHS, I think, demonstrated its its um, uh, political power, um, and I think hardly any major political party will try to uh, explain how they were 
dismantle the NHS as an organization. They may rebrand it as something else, but not dismantle it. The long term, I think uh, the difficulty with that is how long are people's memories in doing it? Um, the Will we be better prepared for our next pandemic? We will for the first decade, and then probably we will start eating away at our stores. Um, you know, we'll, we'll leave things in warehouses and they'll go past their sell-by date, which, already, which is what happened in, in, in our instance this time round. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether it will fundamentally change our view of preparedness for pandemics. Um, I mean, I did lectures to medical students on emergency management, and I don't think the medical students necessarily felt it was in any way relevant to them. Uh, and even when I did it in uh, end of February, uh, three weeks before the lockdown started. Um, but um, so, so people's memories will fade. The legacy may actually to do with social behavior and the economy. Um, the economic structure that this country, the UK has had in terms of being predominantly a service industry we have very little manufacturing industry, relatively speaking, predominantly a service industry, um, is, is now seriously under question. And I think a lot of people will question whether they would want to go into a service industry because it was so fragile and because, you know, the anticipation is we'll see a significant rise in unemployment uh, from that. Um, will we be able to take advantage of a technology-enabled society, uh, an economy? in which there's a predominantly um, uh, information exchange, as it were, drives the economy from uh, online shopping, online dating, um, through to online drinking, as it were. Will our social interactions change such that we don't see each other physically and we accept much more remote or distance um, interactions? Um, and that bit I can't be sure. But I think it will have an impact um, uh, on how, how we behave. Um, I just can't say which industry is going to suffer more and would have to adapt more. Um, and, but clearly, I think they will adapt. We have, um, across all generations, um, learned how to survive on what is minimally required. And that hasn't been taught to many people. Um, if you think about it, um, those who, who were in the war in the post-war, the 1950s, will remember it. But since the 1960s, so we're talking the baby boomers, and I'm a baby boomer, so I was born in the 1960s. And since then, we, we've never really had deprivation at a personal level, um, other than through poverty. Okay, Other than through poverty. But I mean, the rest of the population never really understood do I really need to buy those shoes? Do I really need to buy um, this holiday abroad? And a lot of reassessment of priorities, I think, has taken place. The fallout from that, I can't predict. Mm. I guess also one of the things that, we, like you mentioned, the economy, there's also talk about, um, well, philosophical talk about, uh, is GDP the way forward? You know, we've used that as a measure of our economy and how well we're doing, I guess, as a country and as a society. Uh, and also the whole climate change thing of the fact that we've been locked down and we've seen such a such a massive change in that. 
uh, and let's see let's see if people actually take that forward I guess um, uh, can we we come back to more more sort of medical medically orientated questions and we've got a question about do you think this is going to change the government's approach towards public health uh, I don't know about your opinion on how the government has treated public health officials but do you think this has changed in, in any way um, there's two answers to that um, I'll do the first part, the last part first, which is basically um, public health was incorporated into um, local authorities and suffered cuts uh, and significant cuts. And it, it suffered cuts at two, two ways, cuts in its capacity, number of people, but also cuts in its capability. Um, and I know that uh, others will disagree, but uh, I've watched it from the sidelines and, and it is clearly there are cuts in both capacity and capability in that. Public Health England, by the way, um, they're, they're civil servants. They, they have to sign uh, the Official Secrets Act when they're above a certain level. Uh, they are on a civil service um, pay structure and, and et cetera. Um, and so they were never intended as an operational organization. The operational part was meant to be at the local authority. There are two answers to your question about what do I think about the government's attitude. There's two ways. One approach that the government should take is to use public health as the whipping boy um, for the failures. Because the government, all governments want to do this. They want to deflect all the uh, bad things away from them and take in all the good things. So it's, um, and it's, a, it's a cynical approach, but I can see why the government has done it. One cynical uh, view is the reason the, the uh, government has put it down for local outbreak control is so they can blame the local directors of public health uh, and blame the local public, local authority. It's not me. I'm in charge of England. It's this local authority. It's that local authority. It's that director of public health. They've got the powers. That they should have sorted it out. So um, that's one answer. The other answer is that uh, subsequent to a review, it's bound to happen, there'll be an internal review of capacity and capability, is they will re-examine their capacity and capability and uh, they will enhance that capacity and capability. And it'll be done behind the headlines, the, the headlines won't show it, but it'll be, 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 be done slowly and surely and, and built, built up to cope with the next one um, that are being predicted. Um, the fact that we've had a, a coronavirus type pandemic doesn't mean that we're not due the influenza one. The, the, the influenza virus and coronavirus don't talk to each other and say, well, you know, it's my turn this time. You, you wait a couple of years. There's nothing to say that we're not going to get it. So it's two responses and I can't tell which one it will be. OK, um, so there's another question from one of our fellow students and she asked, um, how do you think this pandemic is going to affect, um, I guess we've talked about healthcare, but what about medical education? Um, as you know, we're kind of going into our placements this year. People that were in fifth, fifth year or fourth year, I think, they've had their electives cancelled. So what do you think about that kind of an impact? We actually haven't talked much about the impact on, on healthcare. Um, and, and, but I'm going to do that and then I'll, I'll do the medical education. So the impact on, on the healthcare has both amplified and accelerated change uh, in ways that um, I, as it's, um, had said, was, is going to happen, but I wasn't expecting to happen so quickly. And that is the acceptance 
of uh, remote consultations. Um, and so in the previous podcast, we you described why I, I introduced Patients Know Best um, as a text-based remote consultation um, and trying to get people to understand that, you know, video and audio remote consultations will take place. Um, it also by implication means that physical examination becomes less important and imaging and tests become more important. So why palpate an abdomen when you can um, actually uh, get a CT scan, as it were? And that's just one example. Um, and there'll be lots of clinicians who were dead against this change. And yet this has taken place. It's pretty well taken place to near enough 95 and above percent in primary care, um, approximately um, with wide range, but approximately 50 percent in, in secondary care. Um, so the impact on healthcare means that medical education is starting to wake up, that they've got to adjust to that new reality. And the anticipation is that um, the remote consultation approach will become a feature of medical education in clinical practice and possibly in preclinical um, education. And the task is to try to work out how to enable that to take place um, either with patients at the time, with patients after the time of the event, um, and with patients simulating or actors simulating in, in events. Um, so both are affected primarily because the pandemic forced changes um, on both systems. And I could say um, I spent pretty well half of my time and half of my career meeting resistance against those very changes. And yet I've seen within a couple of months it switched. Yeah, I had Dr. Dr. Andrew Ward on. He's, he was actually my tutor for the past couple of years. Um, and he said he, he used to do the PKB review, I guess he was part of his unit. Um, and he said he's got a, more than a dozen or a couple of dozen uh, medical schools contacting him because they want they want to get that incorporated in, into their curriculum and how they can do that. So I guess that is the way forward. Um, and I think one of our final questions is going to be about, um, so for me as a medical student and others in my position, um, I guess what skills, what qualities, what mindset can we can we learn from this situation and, and take to our future practice and our careers? Yeah, that one might be a difficult message for you and your listeners. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to tell you what not to assume and then where you could go to look and it may not be as, as specific an example as you, uh, um, answers you'd want. What I'm going to suggest is do not assume that uh, whichever job you're intending to go to, whichever career you intend to go to, specialty you go to, that when you get there, it'll be what it is now. And when you finish, it'll be what it is when you started. And don't necessarily assume that you will find yourself in the same specialty throughout. So let me give you an example. An example would be, you might say that I'd like to be an interventionist cardiologist who basically focuses on stents and putting stents in. Um, as I described to one registrar who, who said this is what they wanted to do, I said, you do realise it only takes one drug 
and suddenly interventional cardiologists are no longer necessary. Um, and it dawned on that registrar that actually that's true. It took one drug to make some an operation which I was taught as a student called highly selective agotomy. And it was an operation that was done for people with uh, peptic ulcers. Because we had no drugs other um, than um, and antacids, um, people with severe peptic ulcers had no other treatment but to cut the vagus nerve as it entered the stomach, and that's called highly selective agotomy. And I was taught lectures on the vagus nerve in great detail so that I understood why dumping um, occurred if you did vagotomies or selective agotomies, etc. The moment H2 antagonists came in, and it was on cymetidine, was by that time a British firm, Glaxo, uh, before it became the GSK, GlaxoSmithKline. Um, the moment cymetidine came on the market, highly selective agotomies stopped. They disappeared. And at that time, I had a professor of surgery whose whole career was built on highly selective agotomies. Now, yeah. overnight, it just disappeared. And that is why you're never taught about those operations. So do not believe that whatever interventions, whatever therapies you've got now, you will have before. The way you practice now will be the way that you'll be practicing in the future. So that leads me on to, well, okay, so what should you be thinking along? Adaptability and flexibility. Looking at skill set rather than knowledge set. And if you want to go somewhere to look at it, and, and work has already been taking place on this. It's, it's been done for over a decade. Um, I'd suggest you go to the World Economic Forum. So if you Google World Economic Forum, skills to thrive in the fourth industrial revolution. And that will start you on their web pages where they asked chief executives and, and senior people around the world um, of organizations what kind of skills uh, you would need. And in terms of competencies, um, there are predominantly four. Uh, one, one is uh, criticality, being able to critique, problem solve. Uh, one is uh, to um, be, um, uh, collaborate. Um, so that is to actually enable you to, to work with other people. Um, alongside that would be communicate. So that is how do you convey and convince people to do things. Um, and the other one is creativity. Um, and that is the competence of being able to create, think of something new, something that's not been done before. So criticality, and I'll put creativity across, against that, alongside that and collaboration and communication. And it amplifies and clarifies what those words mean, as well as the other word. And, and, and they, they talk in terms of getting a passport of skills, not in terms of clinical procedures passport, which you'll come across when you hit year three, where you've got to be able to do blood pressure measurements, per rectal examinations, breast examinations, etc. Um, but actually skill sets that are transferable between specialties, between careers. And medicine may not be, and I do say may, may not be the guaranteed passport for life. And that's where mm -hmm. I'm in conflict with other people, um, where I'm saying, actually, in the 21st century, the role of what a doctor does may actually change so much differently from what you thought it was 
that you may be able to turn to your skill set and what it is. So you clearly have decided to do a podcast. You're learning different skills from doing that. You're having to work with people you've not come across. You've had to change your relationships with them. People who yeah. run student societies are doing the same thing. Even when they're the treasurer, they're learning skills. And sometimes those skills may become the important thing that takes them through later on. That's really interesting uh, and really insightful um, for us to have that. Um, I just had a quick Google of that um, to look at the top 10 skills. Um, and, it, and it looks like an interesting read. I'll have a look at that later. Um, so I think um, just to have a look at the questions that we had, I think we've, we've gone through most of the questions. Um, I guess uh, what's, what I read in the morning in the morning news today was, I'm not sure if you're in, are you in the Leicester area? I am in the Leicester area. So we heard the news about, I guess, I don't know if you call it an outbreak or an increased incidence in, in the Leicester area. Um, and, and they're calling for a, for a local lockdown, I guess. Any, any just quick thoughts on that? Yeah. So uh, one thing I should say is I, I'm outside Leicester City Council area, so I'll be free. Um, but those of you inside Leicester, um, yes. Um, the, the government is, is stated it at the outset that this was its strategy for local control. So it's not doing anything abnormal. The way it's um, identifying these is uh, these areas is essentially a statistical analysis. And so Leicester, and there's, and there's one in West Yorkshire as well, um, but Leicester, um, and in particular East Leicester, has come up as a spike. Okay, so the statistical, they, they would calculate for a population the range, statistical uncertainty range that they're expecting, and the number that is actually coming through in terms of, of number of cases is actually higher than what they were anticipating, with, even within that range. So one thing to say is that this is a statistical concept being applied to a, a local population or to all populations. And, and as you know, um, the confidence intervals um, that generally are talked about in, in terms of statistical analysis is 95% confidence intervals. Now, I don't know if they're using that one or they're, they're using other ones. And let's say even if they did 99%. If you've got over 200 council areas, one or two of them, by chance, are going to come up top. By pure luck, just by chance, even though there's nothing particular around it. So just bear in mind your statistical thing and the statistical concepts that I introduced you to. Now Leicester is up and is higher. What was never really announced was how you're going to enforce it. So is there, and there is a sort of ring road, and I do mean sort of because I've driven around it in frustration at all the uh, holdups in it, but there is a sort of ring road, but are we going to put tanks on the ring road to stop Leicester people coming out and other people coming in? Are we going to enforce a proper lockdown where people are not allowed on the streets unless they're doing their one hour of exercise and they, can, they cannot drive out? And that is essentially, if you want to sort it out, that is essentially what you're going to have to do. Anything else is pleading with the population, please don't do this. Do not gather, do not sell it, do not go to a religious um, event, uh, do not gather. 
But if someone stands in front of the camera and says, well, I don't know anyone in my family that personally that's got it. So therefore, I'm okay, And therefore, I will go out. That is a very difficult thing to hold. And if you've seen in other countries, they've used armed police to enforce it. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I was going to talk about next was, um, I guess I've got it. But when you we were talking about the start of this, we were looking a lot to Italy and you, we were seeing a lot of what was going on abroad. And it's kind of reduced over time. But we were seeing it, was, it seemed much more stricter in those countries than, than this country. Um, they seem to have them, you know, like not tanks, but armed vehicles, I guess, yeah. military. And then you had to have the, the form if you wanted to go outside. But in yeah. the UK, it was as if you could literally just go anywhere. Um, I think yeah. I saw like one police car in the past month and I don't, yeah. it feels, it doesn't feel very strict as, as compared to other countries. It, it, it relies on what Boris Johnson said. It, 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 he says, look, be sensible and, and be careful and be alert. And um, it relies, it, it, basically we are, British society, which is one of the reasons why I love Britain, is, is ruled by consent. But in a crisis, is consent the way you want to do it? Because everyone will interpret consent. And this is why the Dominic Cummings episode is so damaging. You know, the, the chief medical officer of Scotland got into trouble for going to her second home twice. And I think it was something like 20 miles away from Edinburgh. She lost her job. Uh, Ian Ferguson had a lady come to visit him at home twice um, when, when you're not meant to have people visitors. And um, so he resigned from the um, scientific advisory group for emergencies to say he was the one who, who did all the work. He, he led the group around the modelling that initially that informed all the policies that have been happening since. So these people have left. And, and the trouble with the Dominic Cummings episode is I interpreted the rules as I felt fit. That is going to come back. And I, I agree with you. I think unless this country decides it wants armed police on the streets, patrolling streets, seeking ID cards, Remember how resistant this country was to ID cards? And as you said, a permission slip from a local authority, a council, to say I'm allowed out. You know, all that, you're right. Um, we may not be able to enforce it locally in, in, such, a, uh, in such a manner. We, all we may be able to say is you in Leicester have got it. I can see people in North, South and West Leicester saying, yeah, but it's nothing to do with me. It's East Leicester. Mm -hmm. So, you know very well the ethnic composition of East Leicester versus West Leicester. Mm -hmm. And you could see what was going to happen if the West Leicester person sees someone who they think is from East Leicester. We could see all sorts going on that, that's going to, to cause us major problems. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, on a bit of a lighter note, the constellation is that we're not as bad as America. They're a bit, um, they're, they're a bit worse than us. They're all over the place, America. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. a conversation for another day. Yeah. The, the, to be fair to the United States, um, that I think the, the, all the states are trying to ignore Donald Trump to varying degrees. Some of the states have got it sorted. Um, but other states, as you know, um, have clearly not understood the epidemiology. Yeah. Um, and uh, the virus, and I know there's, there's um, 
controversy about the virus affecting certain groups of people more than others. Um, it's not just age, it's not just uh, race, but also uh, economic deprivation. But the virus um, isn't um, racist, um, isn't misogynist or anti-male, um, uh, it isn't um, anti-poor people. The virus just displays what's going on outside. And, and that is a very tough mirror to be looking into as a society. And, and we, we try to blame the virus, but then realize, no, the virus isn't doing anything focused. It's actually showing you what we already knew was in taking place, but we chose to ignore it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess, like I mentioned earlier, we're, we're done with the questions for now. Um, hopefully this was a very interesting episode for you guys. Hopefully we, we managed to answer your questions uh, well enough. Uh, and thanks very much once again, Dr. Shu, for taking your time out. Uh, and coming on. Thank um, you very much for having me. No worries. Um, and as usual, if you have any questions, I guess any follow-up ones or anything related to applying for studying medicine, uh, as usual, the, the email is mo.weanswer, mo.weanswer at gmail.com. The Instagram is mzl underscore 18. Uh, yes, hope everyone has a good week uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye.